0: Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Pete Kunze. My guest today is Pamela Robertson Wojcik, Andrew V. Takis, Professor of Film, Television, and Theater at the University of Notre Dame, and the author of Gidget, Origins of a Teen Girl Transmedia Franchise. The book was published by Rutledge in 2020 and is now available in paperback. Good morning, Pam. How are you? Good. How are you, Pete? Good, good. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, background and training? Sure. Um,
1: I have a PhD in English from the University of Chicago. Um, In fact, all my degrees are in English. And so when I was in college, I started folding cinema studies into my studies in English. I wrote my undergraduate thesis on film noir. And then when I went to graduate school, I was torn between 18th century literature and cinema, and uh a quarter where i had to write a paper on alexander pope and a paper on preston sturgis decided it for me (laughs) sturgis won um so i've been doing film studies ever since and i've been teaching film studies at the university of notre dame since 1998.
0: excellent excellent so what brought you to gidget um well
1: I didn't know I wanted to write about Gidget. And I went to a panel at an academic conference and Yanis Sumakis, who's one of the co-editors of a series on cinema and youth culture said, yeah, we're doing this series on films, you know, about and by, you know, around teen culture. And my heart started pounding. <laughs> gidget, Gidget, I have to do Gidget. And I think it's because Gidget was one of a trifecta of texts that meant a lot to me when I was a kid. Um, I used to watch it on TV all the time, all of the feature films, but particularly the first one. Um, and I, and the trifecta was Gidget, Harriet the Spy, the novel, not the film, um, and Funny Girl. And I think in my mind, somehow, I identified with all of them as misfit girls of one kind or another. And so I had never thought about writing about Gidget, but I
0: thought, yeah, this is something I'd like to explore. Great, right. and gidgets at the intersection of teen culture and uh, girls or women's culture. Can you talk about those areas in the academy and how they, um, how the study has evolved over time? Because you know, at times they've been devalued, particularly by male critics.
1: Um, right, there tends to be, there has tended to be a dismissal of youth culture, particularly girl culture. Um, kind of viewed as sort of the detritus of the culture and often the way that things get denigrated is to talk about them as having girl fandom, you know, so boy bands are denigrated because girls like them or chick flick, you know, is a dismissive term. Um, And I think with youth film it's been taken to be sort of, you know, below consideration for a long time, but then shifted, you know, maybe starting about 10 years ago, um, There's been a lot of attention to youth culture, even starting with cultural studies and interest in subcultures, um, I think, began to open a lot of those doors. Um, And people like, you know, Mary Celeste Kearney, Catherine Driscoll, Moya Luckett, Tim Doherty have been writing really smart, interesting things about teen culture and girls' culture for a long time um, as an indication of how much this field has expanded, I think, the series that the Gidget book is in cinema and youth cultures from Rutgers has 24 titles and the films range, you know, I think what counts as youth culture is also a little bit up for grabs. So the films include things like lady bird and precious and the commitments and Halloween and the breakfast club. So it's, it's not all John Hughes, you know, and thinking Mm. about youth as a sort of client category um, and sort of expanding the idea of that. And when you start to burrow in, you realize that these are not the detritus of culture, that they are a through line, you know, <laughs> through, you know, starting with silent flapper films through Andy Hardy films and, you know, through the teen kind of rebel movies and John Hughes and this
0: so that it's actually kind of a dominant thread through film culture. And Can you run with that? So where do you see Gidget fitting into the history of teen film? And I guess the history of teen television, right? Because she's transmedial right she's not just um it's not just Andy Hardy where we associated primarily with film or um a character that's you know Beverly Hills 90210 is television right but Gidget is mobile Um, right
1: well Gidget Gidget is particularly um transmedia not just film and tv Mm -hmm. but you know to give you an idea (laughs) um there's the original novel, Gidget, The Little Girl with Big Ideas, from 1957. And then that, there were four subsequent novels, The Affairs of Gidget, Gidget and Love, Gidget Goes Parisian, Gidget Goes New York, novelizations of Gidget movies. Um, there were three major fil- feature films, Gidget, Gidget Goes Hawaiian, Gidget Goes to Rome. There's a TV show, Gidget, in the 60s. There's another TV show, The New Gidget, in the 80s. There's TV movies, Gidget Summer Reunion. Um... The new Gidget, uh, sorry, Gidget grows up, Gidget gets married. She shows up in plays that are sort of parodies of Gidget, um, comic books, games, all kinds of things. So so the Gidget franchise is quite expansive and covers decades. But the interesting thing, I think, with Gidget, thinking about teen films, um, even though there were teens in films, I would say... From the silent era forward the category of teen film hadn't cohered yet um and gidget isn't the first film about a teen girl but it's in some way one of the first to have the teen girls narrative be the a plot right to sort of be the main focus so you have teen girls and, and even transmedia teen girls like nancy drew precedes it right um But she starts before the idea of the teenager really coheres, because the idea of the teenager only comes into focus in the late 40s into the 50s, you know, as a sort of distinct generational category and not just sort of an age. Um, Gidget emerges at the same time as the Tammy films, so Tammy and the Bachelor, Tammy Tell Me True, Tammy and the Doctor Tammy's very different from Gidget. Um, She's not an ordinary teenager. She's not meant to be hip or generationally distinct from her parents in any interesting way. She's a rural girl who, you know, meets urban folks and teaches them, you know, that her kind of homespun knowledge is superior to their book learning. Right. So she's not really a modern teen. She's she's always out of time. Um, Mary, Kearney, Mary Celeste Kearney has talked about a date with Judy and meet Corliss Archer, which started, you know, there were stories and radio plays and movies. Um, so they're a little bit closer to Gidget, but they don't get past the Bobby Soxer um, as their model of teendom. So Gidget is a really key film for a kind of modern middle class teendom. What's interesting is that even though the original Gidget film comes out and it's really successful, when they're making Gidget Goes Hawaiian, there's this uncertainty about the audience, right, of, of we can't just pitch this to teenagers. And so that is one that really treads water, kind of the ads are sort of half pitched toward kind of parents like, oh, look at those wacky kids and half pitched toward the kids. And Gidget Goes to Rome is similarly confused in its marketing it keeps invoking la dolce vita like they somehow think that well people like that kind of italian thing so we'll hook it to that and hook it to art cinema which it has virtually no relationship to Um, so that the the category is still very uncertain and the idea that you would have you know a clear audience and this is this is before the rating system goes into place so all films are general audience. Um, so there isn't a real trust that there is a teen audience, even as they're making these films, but Gidget is kind of at that turning point when you're starting to have more of an idea of the teen audience. And then with TV, you get a similar thing. Gidget gets on TV in 1965, and there's a whole bunch of TV shows right in this cluster of years that are about teen girls. Um, There's Too Young to Go Steady, Peck's Bad Girl, Margie, Fair Exchange, Heron. Tammy is a TV show. Um, The only one that's really remembered now or still in much circulation is the Patty Duke show, and that was the most successful. That lasted three seasons. All of these other ones were sort of one season. Um, But again, the question of audience. So when Gidget came on initially they thought that the audience would be sort of young marrieds. So they were, the advertising was tied to cars and sort of hip, sexy cars that they thought those people would want. Um, But at the same time, they were putting out board games and comic books aimed at very young kids. And it's unclear, you know, exactly who was watching this. Um, You know, there have been claims that You know, the father controlled the remote control. And so that's why Gidget didn't last more than a season. But it clearly had an audience. um, And then the audience grew once it went into syndication. Um, But there wasn't yet a really distinct category of teen TV. Again, because, you know, if you have three to four stations, if you count the UHF, there isn't a way to sort of channel things toward a teen audience in the way that you get once you have cable, right? And you can have kind of Nickelodeon pitching to a kind of teen block. Um, but they were trying with the TV, they had sort of dance shows and, you know, American Bandstand and Shindig and these other shows that were aimed at teams and they were trying to create a kind of coherent block, but it shifted very quickly.
0: That's a great overview of uh, the Gidget franchise. And as you were talking, I was thinking about generations of Gidget I was thinking about audiences of Gidget I was thinking of spaces where one could find Gidget right whether Mm -hmm. it's um, print or um, television or film can you tell us how do you research this Um, where do you start and where did your research take you
1: yeah um, well when I started writing the book the series is supposed to be you just write about a film and you talk a little bit about the origin of the film which you know is usually production history. You sort of analyze the film and then you give a sense of its afterlife. As I started doing that with Gidget, I was like, okay, well, I have to look at that original novel, which then led me to think about all of the other novels that are running alongside the release of these films, right? And then in thinking about the afterlife, you know, Well, okay, you got the two feature films. Well, then there's the TV show. And then the 80s TV show, which I had no idea even existed. You know, I don't know where I, I mean, I was probably in college and not interested in gadget shows on TV. Um, So looking at these, you know, it it became harder and harder to think, well, what's the gadget text and what's the before and the after, right? Because they all kind of speak to each other and they vary a lot. Um, sort of in the ways that the narrative shifts, and we can talk about that, but so researching it partly, you know, was sort of gathering these things, and then looking into, you know, the production and reception history sort of for each one to think about how are they engaging with this larger universe? How are they thinking about their own fit, right? Obviously, the first novel doesn't have to worry about that, but every text after that is in some ways speaking to all the other texts and thinking about what shifts are being made, um, how to reframe it. So, you know, with the films, I spent time at the Margaret Herrick Library, which is the Academy's um, library in California, which was tremendously helpful because they have not only, you know, original draft scripts and final scripts, um, but they have a lot of the marketing material. They have a lot of the production notes. So you can sort of see the conversations that are happening around the films. Um, With the books, a lot of the books, it's hard to find any trace of them, really. I mean, you can find paperback versions around, um, but a lot of them, you know, didn't get reviewed, don't have much circulation, but you can find a lot around the original novel, um, and then with the TV shows, you know, there's there's press, there's sort of different reception things, just looking at the TV schedule to see how they're being situated and things. So that with everything, I was trying to think about each part of the Gidget universe in its historical context, right? And sort of thinking about the production, what else is going on in the culture at the same time? Because I also found, you know, that not only do all the Gidget texts speak to each other, but they're all connected to other things that are happening in the culture. So, you know, I mentioned um, Gigi Goes to Rome and La Dolce Vita, which to me was a very surprising connection, because La Dolce Vita is a couple years before. But there seemed to be an idea, well, you know, there had been a lot of runaway productions in the 50s and 60s, where Americans would be in Rome and you know, a lot of things that had become cliches, like, you know, visits to the Trevi Fountain and sort of different emphasis on fashion and things. And Gidget certainly plays into that, but the very specific connection to what Dolce Vita seemed to want to connect Gidget to a kind of decadent Rome um, and to in a way sex her up again with the confusion about audience um so that that was a connection i wouldn't necessarily have thought about but it came through a lot of the press materials and the marketing
0: yeah and that points to the greater question here of, of female subjectivity which is interesting because the book was written um by the father of a young girl so can you talk about that relationship between um the coners I and mean, in fact you got to meet uh, kathy right so
1: Yeah, Yeah. Kathy Conner Zuckerman is fabulous. Um, She's still in Malibu and pre pandemic, at least she was still working two days a week at Duke's Malibu restaurant as the kind of Aloha ambassador and you could go in and meet Gidget and take pictures. There was a wall of Gidget photos and and she's just lovely, really lovely. Um, But Kathy had started surfing at Malibu, and she wasn't the only girl there, but she was one of very few. Um, And she came home at some point and said to her father, Gee, I think I'd like to write a book about my experience. And her father said, I'll write the book because her father was a screenwriter. Um, Kathy, you know, didn't resent this in any way, thought, yeah, he's a writer, great. Um, And Connor is interesting. So he's a screenwriter. He had moved from Vienna to Prague to Berlin and then emigrated to the US. Um, he had studied film. And then when he came here, his brother had preceded him. His brother Paul Kohner was an agent in Hollywood. Um, Kohner wrote numerous screenplays, mostly musicals and light comedies. Um, a lot of a lot of films with sort of doubling in them. Um and different themes, Um, the book Gidget the Little Girl with Big Ideas was under contract before it was even finished. So, you know, in some way, this is a story about someone who's hooked into Hollywood, the success of this depends on Conor and his brother being an agent, having those kinds of connections. Um, The novel is written by him. And some critics have said, Oh, you know, that makes it kind of pure. And, you know, this guy writing about this girl and one critic compares it to Lolita. I don't think that really holds up um, because the book is written in the voice of the girl um, and she is telling her own story. She talks about herself as a writer. She she claims she's not a good writer. Um, that she doesn't like writing, but then there's this whole novel. It's very much filtered through her perspective. It's very much a coming-of-age story where she's sort of experiencing sexual desire for the first time. She's also discovering surfing, um, which is equally important in the narrative. Um, The excitement of surfing in some way trumps the excitement of the romances. And in fact, at the end of the book, she says, "Ah, you know, maybe those boys were just kind of a a dream or a fantasy but surfing that's my real love and it ends with her surfing um and so yeah it's interesting the way that it that it does work as a female narrative and when when the original script is written Koner writes a screenplay that isn't in Gidget's voice he writes a screenplay that starts with surfers ogling girls on the beach and it's much more it seems almost tilted toward a kind of exploitation pick it's very different from his other screenplays um, it has a lot of slang and a lot of kind of talk about you know boobs and things um, and that's not the screenplay that gets made um, part of that is there's a shift at the studio they're with colombia but they're with a subsidiary uterp that's an independent unit Um, But that unit kind of dies off. They abandon the project, gets picked up by a different producer. And then that producer hires a different writer, hires Gabrielle Upton, who'd been writing mainly soaps. She was a writer for Guiding Light. And she resituates it as a girl's narrative. So it has a female voiceover that opens it up. It's framed as a flashback where Gidget is reflecting back on, you know, the summer that changed her life.
0: Can we develop that a bit further? Um, a, a big theme in the, the book is, you know, um Gidget as a single girl or Gidget in dating, Moondoggy gets mentioned a lot. Mm-hmm. Um so you know, how important is that to the Gidget franchise? Um, and, and I'd love to hear more about how it relates to surfing, which seems to be a a bow in its own right.
1: Yeah, the coupling is very important. Um, and in fact. You know, one of the things that happens as Gidget progresses through um, different iterations is the casting of Gidget keeps changing. Right. So Sandra Dee is in the original film. Deborah Wally comes in for Gidget Goes Wine because Sandra Dee goes over and does the Tammy franchise. She replaces Debbie Reynolds. So there's this sort of weird movement between these things. Um, Cindy Carroll comes in for Gidget Goes to Rome. And then Sally Fields, of course, does the 60s TV show and Karen Richmond does the 80s TV show. For the movies, James Darren as Moondoggy is the consistent figure. Um, and and the press materials all make clear that's essential, that, that Moondoggy has to be there. Um, but what's interesting is the films all have to then break up Gidget and Moondoggy and get them back together. So that the having them together is really important, but it has to be destabilized and threatened in every iteration, including also the TV movies. Um And so part of that, I think, is that the pleasure isn't in seeing a happy couple, right? The pleasure is in having a couple come together. Um, But it's interesting because what it means is that you have this couple that you're supposed to be invested in. And there's a real risk in the films where suddenly you know, they're dating other people, they seem potentially interested, particularly in Gidget Goes to Rome, you get the sense that, that the Doggy character is really in love with Daniela, who's the kind of sexy Italian lady, um, and that Gidget, you know, has a very deep crush on this older man, and in both cases, those people reject them, and they end up back together, but it, but it feels a little risky. Um, I talk in the book about, I kind of compare it to Barbie, because Erica Rand has written about Barbie and the way that Hen operates in relation to Barbie, you know, not only with the dolls, but with all the kind of um, narratives that get hung around Barbie. And it's the same thing where you want to know that this guy's around, but you have to leave her free in certain ways to explore the world, to grow up. You know, it it can't be a marriage narrative because then it stops being about youth, basically. Um, So the, the Gidget TV show pretty much eradicates the moon doggy figure, (laughs) you know, he shows up in the first episode and then he's supposed to be away at college and Gidget is constantly dating other people. She's at high school, she's going to dances, you know, he shows up only once later in the series. Um, And it's, you know, that idea that the period of adolescence needs to be a little bit up for grabs, right? That, that once you settle into that coupledom, then you're, you know, past it um so that's part of it i think but i think it's also part of it to keep alive the idea of this girl kind of exploring and figuring herself out and figuring out her own desires so it's it's an interesting tension in them
0: yeah and you know um as you were speaking i was thinking about um the romantic comedy as a genre more broadly and um personally I'm teaching a class on the musical right now and the musical always returns to stasis. It always returns to right. a conservative affirmative ending. Um, and I know you've written on the musical as well because uh, having read your earlier work but also this notion of ends-oriented criticism comes up in your book mm-hmm. um, which, which Altman kind of gets us to think about in terms of privileging the ending and maybe not privileging the ending in our assessment. Can you yeah. talk about um, Altman's concept there and, and why it's useful for you in, in studying Um, a franchise like Gidget.
1: Yeah I mean as you know so when Altman is first writing about the musical he adopts this kind of structuralist approach where the idea is that you know the musical is structured around kind of alternation and opposition between you know scenes of the man scenes of the woman it might be scenes of them with their kind of friend group it might be solos um, and usually they're opposed in some way, you know, rich and poor or bohemian and bourgeois or whatever kind of opposition. And it, and it moves through this kind of alternation until eventually you bring them together and you have the formation of the couple at the end, right? Um, and this this ties into Raymond Bellore, who, you know, says all, all Hollywood films are about the formation of the couple. And so Altman initially goes with that, but then he returns to it later and says, you know maybe that's not enough, because what it does is it forces you to eradicate everything that happens in the middle, and that there are these tensions and complexities in the middle that are actually kind of vital and important. Um, And one of them is potentially this pull toward, you know, this sort of homosocial grouping, right, which can tip into potential queerness. And in some way, that ending that that formation of the couple is a way of sort of Eradicating that possibility, right? It kind of teases it and then eradicates. And the other problem is that, as I said with Gidget, there's this tendency in romantic comedies and the musical to throw other possible um, partners into the mix, right? That there have to be these threats to the couple so that you can celebrate the couple at the end. But in some way, the focus on that ending forces you to sort of deny the power of those. Um, polls that are in the films and so a lot of theorists have sort of attended to the middle whether they're sort of doing a queer reading of musicals or romantic comedies or just trying to think about the experience and the actual pleasures of the film as you're moving through right that that the moving through is as important as where you arrive with that happy ending in some way the happy ending is the least of it in certain ways and so with Gidget. The reason I started thinking about it there is because, you know, as you were saying earlier with the way that girl culture can often be dismissed, even within things that people have written about youth culture, there tends to be a sort of hierarchy of films. And so Gidget in a lot of the readings that I was coming across would be pitted against rebel without a cause. And that was sort of modeled as sort of authenticity and you know masculine juvenile delinquency and to some degree female sexual delinquency although they tend to ignore the natalie wood character a bit um and gidget would be dismissed as this is the clean teen this is the this is the this is the teen film that's made for parents this is you know kind of denuded of any of the complexity of youth um and it didn't it didn't jibe with my experience of it, and a lot of that reading hangs on the fact that um, there's, a, there's a mistaken identity component to Gidget, the, the original movie, where Gidget is at the beach, she meets this guy Moondoggy, you know, he's this surfer, she's falling in love, they're kind of grappling with what that means for each other. And at the same time, her father is saying, I want you to go out with this clean cut boy who's my friend's son. And of course, at the end, it turns out that they're the same person, that Moondoggy is Jeff who goes to college and that, you know, he's a surfer, but he's also this clean cut college kid. Um, and at the end, Gidget ends up with Moondoggy. She gets pinned. And so a lot of these readings of it as a clean teen pick hang everything on that. Like, well, her father's desires win in the end instead of thinking about the ways that well in fact it's the desire she had all along Um, but it also I also wanted to think about all of the ways that Gidget is pushing herself and, and feeling all these kind of erotic feelings and all the complexity and a kind of leaning into particularly her sexuality and not super clean this isn't this isn't a narrative about sort of a squeaky clean girl who refuses to have any you know sex or interaction it's more about a girl who isn't quite sure how to go about it um and so at the beginning she's kind of not a tomboy exactly but more like You know, a little stuck in childhood, you know, her friends are all parading around in bikinis and they want to go to the beach and pick up boys, and she just wants to kind of play. Um, and there's a kind of tension there about, you know, how do you grow up? How do you move from being that kid into that other role? And it's not super easy to do. And with Gidget, you have this sort of sense that. She is this kind of kid who matures over the thing, and part of that maturation is through her discovery of erotic desire. You know, her mother says something like, "Well, you know, you'll know it'll it'll be like you get hit over the head," and of course, she literally gets hit on the head. And you know, Moondoggy has to rescue her not once but twice. She gets caught in kelp, and you know, kind of discovers these feelings in herself, and and even at some point, throws herself at the big Kahuna, who's the older kind of you know, more um, entrenched surfer um, and gets rescued from that. But it's not that this is, this is a girl who is completely outside a lot of those feelings and those kind of ambivalences of youth. It's just that her trajectory eventually takes her to this coupling, which then gets undone and undone and undone. Um, and I think the surfing, you had asked about that, I think the surfing is really key because that is a countercultural act in the period for a girl to be searching, searching, surfing, um, is pretty rare. And when you read histories of surfing, they'll often talk about the character of Gidget as being this real turning point in popularizing the idea of surfing, kind of helping to mainstream it, um, and it's, it's a pretty interesting thing to be hanging out on the beach with these figures who are themselves very bohemian. You know, they're kind of opting out of work um, and kind of the march toward breadwinning and things. So, you know, and part of, part of how they talk about Gidget is that she tames Kahuna because he eventually goes back into work. Um, but in some way, again, that that ability to hang out and sort of explore that other side, I think, is really important and why the middle seems to me to matter as much, if not more than the
0: end. I'm curious if you could talk about, um, you know, I'm thinking about surfing, right? And mm-hmm. you, know, you have teenagers in in swimsuits, right? Teenagers who have hormones. Um, I mean, does this become a way where they can kind of innocently explore... You know interacting with the opposite sex you know this rising mm-hmm. desire do you, do you feel like surfing provides this kind of um you know um arena for the exploration of these developing feelings in a way that say uh, skiing might not mm-hmm. or or uh...
1: well it's interesting because in in the original book and in the original film You know, because in those Gidget is the only girl right and her girlfriends have no interest in surfing what they want to do is pose on the beach and sort of look attractive and attract the boys, and the surf culture is very masculine. Um, You know, and this gets played up in that initial draft script, um, but even in the other ones, you know that it's this kind of homosocial world of men, women are not welcome. Um, they have you know a lua where you bring women but there's there's a real distinction you know that these are sort of sexualized women who are outside of the surfing culture who they can date but can't incorporate into the surfing culture so it doesn't have that vibe at that time Um, and in some ways Gidget's ability to penetrate it is because she's not perceived as much of a woman right The, the Gidget is supposed to be girl midget and so she's diminutive she's a girl she's not a woman and there's moments in the film that will pit her against you know much taller bustier women who are sort of you know the real women by the time of the tv show in the 60s you know they don't have gidget surfing as much i think they downplay a lot that aspect of it um, and make it much more about high school um but they always show scenes you know, in the opening and closing credits of surfing. And those are much closer, I think, to what you're talking about. But I think it's the difference between, you know, 1959 and 1965, because Gidget, not alone, but Gidget is part of a move to mainstreaming surfing and, you know, helps launch a series of surf films, surf music, um, beach beach movies and things that are much closer to what you're talking about, where, there's a kind of party sexy vibe to the surf culture where it is about kind of dancing on the beach and hanging out with kids in you know more attractive costumes than you might in some other venues but i think with the original it really isn't that and so there's a real shift in the
0: culture and in the representation of surfing and so since Gidget is a narrative about transitions, right? Physical, Mm -hmm. emotional, psychological, it means the actress can't play the part for too long, especially if it goes on over several years and several iterations in different media. Can you talk about um, multiplicity, which comes up in your framing of Mm -hmm. Gidget as a franchise, as well as the actresses who have played her um, and how there may be variations among... Um, those performances and those um, presentations of Gidget in different moments.
1: Yeah, the um, the reason the actor for Gidget changes so frequently early on isn't about aging out, right? It's just, it's a kind of career whack-a-mole of <laughs> moving parts. Um, so Sandra Dee is cast in the original film, and she makes a lot of sense because she's been in a number of films at the time that have her playing these kind of restless teens struggling with their own sexuality you know the the kind of grease version of her you know that she's just what is it oozing with virginity um again isn't quite right because it's it's much more ambivalent and problematic in those films so it makes sense for her in gidget um but I think this is a period when the expectation isn't automatically that there will be sequels. Um, so nobody's locking someone down. But because Tammy is starting at the same time as Gidget, and the second Tammy movie, Sandra D is cast in that. So she can't be in the second Gidget movie. So they hire Deborah Wally to come in. And the interesting thing is each time they bring in a different a- actress, there's sort of this work to introduce her so with deborah wally particularly you know there's ads that are sort of about the new gidget and they have her you know these these kind of print and tv ads that have her she's the new gidget and then she's on the phone with moon doggy um and kind of being introduced and brought in um but she has to assert her identification with gidget her similarity to gidget um, so that the the idea of the character becomes more important than the specificity of the actress, as long as you're Gidget enough, right? Um, so again, she does one movie, and then they bring in a new one for Gidget Goes to Rome. They bring in Cindy Carroll, and it's the same thing. You know, it's sort of, here's the new Gidget. You know, and it's... I. I think now we're, we're used to this model. You know, there's always a new Batman. There's always a new Spider-Man, right? That, that kind of franchising um, is pretty typical, but I think it's relatively new and relatively different. But again, because we had, you know, a Nancy Drew who could change over time. um, It's not completely alien. Um, Sally Field comes in for the TV series and. You know, again, each time they claim that there was a giant contest and that this girl made it through, you know, and each time it sort of expanded, you know, well, we looked at 50 girls, we looked at 350, we looked at a thousand girls, you know, but then the one that they get is sort of like, well, I think of myself as a gadget. you know, that's how I operate in the world. And I I identify with her so much so that each of them kind of slides into it, but they're very different actors they're physically different um you know the first three digits are all blondes sally field and karen richmond are both dark hair um so there's even you know kind of changes in the conception of the character in that way um and as they as they move through the characters changes are partly related to the difference in the actresses and partly in as I said, that tension and that difficulty in figuring out what what do we want this movie to be? Who is it for, right? Um, I mean, the interesting thing is that each of them gets sutured to that first film in the feature films. They'll have a flashback. So at the end of the first film, you know, Moondoggy asks Gidget if he can pin her before she, he goes off to college. She says, oh boy, would I? And he puts the pin on. And that's the couple. In Gidget Goes Hawaiian, you have Deborah Wally have sort of a memory of that moment. And you get flashbacks to scenes of Deborah Wally in the original Gidget film, wearing Gidget's bathing suit, sitting in Kahuna's hut, you know, sort of scenes that are refilmed with Wally so that. The memory that the audience would bring to the franchise is sort of furthered through that. And then in Gidget Goes to Rome, you again have an audio flashback to that, oh boy, would I, to the pinning, um, so that they're constantly connecting her backwards. At the same time, a lot of other things are shifting around um, so that the parents change, across the feature films and then when you get to the tv series the most dramatic change the tv series this the original 60s one is really interesting because it sort of goes back to the book um and adds a sister and a brother-in-law because in the book the the sister is married and the the brother is the brother-in-law is a psychoanalyst and at some point the parents are worried that Gidget is having sex so they sort of send the psychoanalyst after her to kind of explore that character comes back in the tv show he's now a grad student studying psychology Um, but the most interesting thing is they kill the mother so in the Gidget tv series Gidget's relationship with her father suddenly becomes dominant um moondoggy is out at college and not really part of it and that father-daughter relationship which starts to feel like a sort of practice for her to become a housewife you know it, it feels
0: incredibly conservative compared to particularly the first film that's fascinating and um It's interesting that you point to Batman, right? We always think of franchises in terms of these male characters, not in terms of uh, the girls and the women who populate their own franchises. I'm wondering, thinking about contemporary work on franchising and the multiplicity within the Gidget franchise, this is a bit of a false binary, but I'm still gonna present it. Um, Do you see that they're anticipating that people watching these subsequent iterations are familiar with the earlier one and are coming to this nostalgically? Or do you get a sense that they're anticipating a new audience <clears throat> and therefore they can kind of wipe the slate? I'm thinking of the Batmans, right? I mean, obviously mm-hmm. the Adam West Batman and the Michael Keaton Batman and um, the Christian Bale Batman in some ways kind of wipe the slate a little bit. Um right. and, and kind of anticipate perhaps a, a new audience. But I'm I'm curious um your your thoughts here about nostalgia or um new demos coming into the franchise. And
1: yeah, I think that. With the feature films, there's definitely, excuse me, an assumption that you're familiar with the original and those flashbacks and reminders of the original are very important and the continuity of Moondoggy through those also stitches them together despite the changes as actress. With the Gidget TV show, you have something that's, you know, not quite a complete reboot, but not a sequel, you know. It sort of backs her up to um, the beginning, you know, of the year after the first summer with Moon right? So, in that sense, it should be a sequel, which would be, you know, about the same time as Gidget Goes to Hawaiian, but where the feature films are very much about the summer, about this sort of transitional period of exploration and travel, and you know, discovering surfing and things. The TV show is much more situated in the school and the home. Um, It's much more conventional teen thing. So in some way, it invites people in who may not know the series, right? Who just understand, okay, teen girl. And a lot of the specificity of Gidget, um, you know, she's supposed to be a little bit nerdy and brainy and a surfer. And as I say, she goes to the beach in the TV show. You know, you you see her sitting on the beach. You never really see her surfing very much at all um, or even talking about surfing. Um, She's much more kind of just a regular gal. And so I think in that way, the TV series does somewhat wipe the slate, particularly because they kill the mother, right? Um, And it situates it amidst not only all those other teen girl shows that I mentioned, but the wealth of shows about single dads in the period, um, which there's a sort of insane emphasis on those kinds of things um, to the degree that Betty Friedan wrote an article for TV guide where, you know, she was saying, well, you know, when women are on TV, they're just reduced to nothing and they just seem to be eradicating them all together and focusing on these fathers. And I think Gidget really fits into that trend. So Again, because each of these sort of is speaking to things from its own context, I think that show operates more on its own than the sequels to the feature film do. And it's interesting when I was working on this, when I would say to people, I'm writing about Gidget, a very large percentage would come back and say, Oh, Sally Field, you know, that's the Gidget they knew. And I think that's because that Gidget despite only having the one season was in syndication for a long time. And so a lot of people, my age may or may not have seen the original film, but definitely saw that TV show and that TV show spoke to them. And that was sort of their Gidget. Right. And they remember Gidget. They remember Gidget's best friend, LaRue, who's kind of the vaguely queer horse focused friend. Um Virtually no one I know (laughs) was aware of the new Gidget TV show in the 80s, and that that is very much a nostalgia machine, because what they do there is they finally do have Gidget and Moondoggy married, but they're taking care of Gidget's niece, who has a best friend who's just like LaRue, um, and who gets into, you know, Gidget-like adventures, so that everything pushes down to this younger generation But with a framing narration of Gidget now as an adult, you know, a real estate agent um, reflecting on what's happening with her niece. So it's pitched, I think, to an audience that's maybe older and maybe remembers Gidget, um, but I suppose, you know, could also have been of interest to younger audience that might have identified with, but it doesn't seem, and the books are interesting because the books mainly push Gidget into her 20s. Um, you know, when Gidget's in New York and this gets picked up in a TV movie, she's working at the UN, right? And the TV movies are pretty fascinating <laughs> because that's also a new form. You know, if teen movies and teen TV are new, the movie of the week, you know, is very new, that kind of TV modeling. Gidget is one of the first, Um and the, the Gidget grows up one is really interesting because Gidget moves to New York. She gets a job at the UN as a tour guide. She moves into an apartment with other gals that is rented to them by Paul Lind, who's playing an wow. obviously gay former child star. It's riddled with sort of camp references. So the apartment that he rents them has, you know, images of all these old Hollywood divas all over the walls. And he says, you can't change any of this. Um so she kind of gets her first kind of male gay best friend who then also shows up and Gidget gets married he he gives her a candelabra from you know an early Dracula film and he films the wedding that then we see his film and it's a 60s conception of silent film it's playing much too fast and it's silent mm-hmm. you know so there's all these kind of weird connections and nostalgia for old hollywood at the same time it's the first one where you clearly have Gidget have a sexual affair. She has an affair with the, you know, Australian ambassador. And then, you know, Moondoggy comes back. And that film has Moondoggy in um, Vietnam. He comes back. I mean, so it's kind of bonkers the way that it can, it can move forward kind of topically, Um, and bring her to a level of sophistication that's more typical of a representation of a young woman in that period that doesn't really have all that much connection to Gidget or surfing you know her father does show up but other than that you know it's just sort of a girl in the city Um, Mm. so that each of them I think is really potentially working the narrative in different ways and maybe working a different audience because of that because of the different media you know and then the board game and comic books those seem to be aimed at very young girls
0: mm-hmm.
1: um you know and that those are coming out particularly with the Sally Field iteration and as i said that show isn't quite sure who it's for but they're pitching some of the merchandise at least to young people Um, So it's, it changes a lot. And I think it's, it's different from the Batman model. You know, the the sort of Henry Jenkins idea of convergence culture depends on not just that there's a whole bunch of texts, right across different media, but that fans are engaged and sort of paying attention to all those differences and engaging with it and even influencing it. Mm -hmm. And with Gidget, I think there's potentially some of that, but I think it's, it's a little bit different that there isn't kind of this rabid Gidget fan base. That's just sort of consuming every possible thing and comparing and contrasting and doing this. I think it is people aging in and aging out or gee, you know, I like those TV movies of the week. I'll see what the one is this week. Um, or, you know, I'll, I'll try this. TV show in the eighties, because there's nothing else to do. <laughs> um, you know, and I don't I don't think they're the same people who would be as invested in
0: kind of Sandra D, say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that leads into the next question, which is, what has been the cultural legacy of Gidget? Is, is Gidget still with us or, or do you see, looking at contemporary girls' culture, um, Gidget-like characters,
1: Yeah, I think that you know, in the in being at the sort of early stages of teen film and teen TV, that Gidget, along with something like Patty Duke, um, carved the way. Right, Um, helped feminize the genre of the youth film. You know, if it's if the youth film is previously associated with things like Rebel Without a Cause and Blackboard Jungle and Rock Around the Clock, teen films. After Gidget start to pay more attention to women, right? I think without Gidget, you don't have Pretty in Pink. You know, you don't have a lot of those films that are sort of focused on girls, right? Um, I think something like Booksmart owes a debt to Gidget because I think that best friend. You know, one of the things we haven't talked about is Gidget, not only in the TV show with Larue, but in the in the movie and in the book, has this best friend who's kind of this crucial figure that, you know, she can kind of confide in and who kind of walks with her through her experience, but doesn't share it, right. Doesn't go to the beach, doesn't surf with her, but Gidget can kind of consult. And I think something like Smart plays on that. I think it's, it paved the way for a lot of single girl TV shows um, things like that girl and Mary Tyler Moore, and particularly girl TV um. Shows like Lizzie McGuire, Hannah Montana, iCarly. Um, as I say, I think the TV movies, you know, helped craft that form that became very vital. Um, and I think even something like the new Gidget, the 80s version, you know, that's about kind of creating an alternate family, right? Gidget and Moondoggy raising the niece. Um, and I think that you get that kind of alternate. Family structure and things like Full House or Family Matters or The Fresh Prince of Bel Air. So I think there's a lot of ways that Gidget was at the forefront. Um, and I and I mentioned, you know, beach films, Annette Funicello and Frankie Avalon films wouldn't necessarily happen without Gidget or in the same way. Um, so I think I think she radiates out in a lot of different directions, just as other texts created the
0: context and the possibility for her coming forward. Yeah, and it's interesting to think too about like how she would situate a larger kind of fascination with teen culture in California, right? It seems so many teen narratives have us returning to California um, as the, the ideal space for adolescents. Um, I'm curious, yeah. If, yeah, go ahead.
1: Oh no, I was gonna say, yeah. I mean, California is really important in the way that in that period, it is becoming identified with teen culture. And so that a lot of that kind of, you know, beach boys and things that that become, even though, you know, very few people in America have that experience, but but we read it as the quintessential teenage experience, right? And so in a way that, you know, Brooklyn never became. <laughs> Or something else. And, and the idea of a kind of middle-class teen culture, um, you know, you think of something like, you know, the Partridge family. When I was a kid growing up, I, was, I thought it was incredibly exotic and fascinating that they would go hang out at the taco stand. You know, that seemed very California to me, um, as, long as, as well as, you know, things like Gidget with the
0: beach. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I, I have a bit of a big question here for you, which is, mm-hmm. um, where do you see kind of future directions, maybe not only for Gidget research, but just for girls' media culture research, um, you know, having spent this time working on this project?
1: yeah i i don't know that i'm doing any deeper dives um but i know that other people are um there's a lot of work coming out about patty duke and teen tv um there's a lot of energy and interest particularly i think in expanding the scope of girl studies to focus less on kind of white Girls as sort of the center um, and to kind of decenter girl studies and really think about, you know, Black girls and Latinx girls and Asian girls and how thinking about different communities or different kinds of intersections um, would complicate the idea of girls. I think there's been more attention to kind of queer girldom. Um, I think that the expansion beyond um, the genre of the teen film and toward conceptions of youth outside that genre. So I've recently been writing about um, early 1970s hitchhiking films, which are all about um, young women and, you know, the category of youth keeps shifting as well. Um, and so these are, these are films that, you know, don't get picked up as teen films, even though, you know, they're generally women who are about 18, um, who are on the road, um, sexually promiscuous, hitchhiking, um, and, and in genres that are closer to exploitation than what we think of as teen film, but that we're showing in drive-ins labeled, you know, for the youth. Um, but again, that that conception is fuzzy. Um, and so I think expanding what we're willing to consider youth films seems to me where a lot of the work is heading is sort of figuring out, well, you know, youth is kind of pliant and there's lots of, I mean, in some way, a lot of the superhero films, right, are youth films, not just because they're aimed at a youth market, but because, you know, Spider-Man is a kid. <laughs> um, but we don't, we don't tend to think of them in that way. And I think that, you know, we can, we can expand a lot how we think about youth. If we, if we don't assume that youth film means John Hughes movies.
0: Yeah. It seems to be a very productive time for, for youth film studies and for, for girlhood studies in general. I mean, we just, we could sit here and list numerous important contributions to the field mm-hmm. in the last few years. Um, you mentioned it briefly, um, but can you tell us a little bit more about what you're working on now in terms of, of hitchhikers and... Um, yeah, cinematic I'm, representation?
1: So I'm working on a book that's called Unhomed Mobility and Placelessness in American Cinema. And I'm trying to think about different forms of being unhomed, homeless, unhoused, mobile, placeless, Um, And I'm thinking it through films. So I'm looking at cycles of films that seem to respond to a moral panic about different kinds of homeless or mobile figures. So the first chapter is about the figure of the tramp who dominates cinema. um, And that's a relatively long cycle. I mean, from the beginning of cinema until 1945 or so, Um, because there's these waves of panics about tramps. And tramps are, you know, one of the most popular characters in not just film, but vaudeville comics, you know, again, across Mm -hmm. numerous media, memoirs, um, all of these kinds of books and things. And so thinking about the tramp as a figure in that period and how ubiquitous the tramp seemed to be and kind of his ubiquitousness being what causes the panic because you can't swing a cat without there being a tramp. And it's, it's treated comedically, melodramatically, tragically, it's treated in all these different ways. Um, But it's a very particular thing about the particular mobility that differentiates the tramp from earlier vagrants, right? Because he can traverse the country by train and foot, and he can kind of show up anywhere. And then the second chapter is about world war II um which we always you know kind of project oh the greatest generation that was the period of stability and things but when you actually look at it there's this deep panic about not only years long housing crises which are formed by the fact that tons of people moved during the um war across the country internally to go work near defense plants or to follow men or various things you know millions and millions of people and the housing can't keep up because there's all these restrictions on, you know, building materials and things. Um, but also, there's this real panic about what are we going to do with these men when they come back? You know, it, it gets referred to as the veteran problem. And so, in that, I'm looking at, you know, kind of comedies about the housing crisis, but also these, you know, films that are really serious things about what it means to be rehomed, what it means to come home after you've been out there and you've seen horrible things and you've had freedom and you've had different sexual mores and a lot of it, you know, the unsettling of that and how how men are being brought back and also, you know, how this impacts women Um, and women losing a lot of the freedom that they gain when the men are away. Um, And then there's a chapter about hitchhikers, which deals not only with those teen runaways, um, but also looks at the hitchhiker in film noir, who's much more a figure of menace, um, because there was a, you know, hitchhiking was a very accepted practice from the 20s, you know, kids hitchhike to school, people hitchhike to jobs, you know, women hitchhike, There's, there's all this literature about it, but when you start to get the national highway system, it becomes much more difficult because you don't have the ability to kind of hop on, hop off, you know, the smaller roads. But also the FBI, Hoover, launches this huge campaign against hitchhiking, you know, all about this sort of menace, right, and makes it seem dangerous and After the war, during the war, it's considered patriotic to pick up hitchhikers. But afterwards, you know, the idea is like, oh, just be contained in your car and stick to yourself and don't do that. So you get this bunch of films that are about these kind of men who will, you know, get in your car and murder you, basically. Um, And then and then, you know, it kind of comes back and it comes back strong through. Kerouac and a kind of countercultural hippie impulse, and that's where a lot of these teen runaway. And what's interesting to me is how many of them are about girls. Um, girls hitchhiking on the road by themselves or in pairs, and you know it goes with risks, but also tremendous freedom. And then there, the chapter I'm writing now is about the '80s and the beginning of what we would think of as modern homelessness. Um, so street people and a changing demographic of the homeless, a new visibility as gentrification um, kind of gets rid of skid rows. So you don't have kind of an area in cities for transients um, and looking at that. And a lot of the way that the homeless are being represented in the 80s gets filtered through notions of um, basically trash um, as as urban waste as something to be eradicated. Um, and. The most surprising thing is there's you know social problem films that are earnest always about white people right the white homeless get you know because there's some new sense that white people are homeless but it's it's a much smaller percentage than the movies would have you think um so there are these earnest social problem films but then there's tons of these comedies which are romantic comedies and or bromances you know where it's a bromance between a rich guy and a homeless guy, and they kind of, you know, the the homeless guy becomes a sage who helps the rich guy understand himself better, but then, you know, the homeless guy gets lifted up in a kind of neoliberal, you know, thing that makes being homeless seem like it's just like a choice, um, and so they're 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 pretty interesting. Um, and then, you know, the last chapter will talk about precarity and contemporary youth and gig culture. I think. So that's the that's the current project. So little bits of youth, um, lots of gender, lots of questions of class.
0: Yeah, and I can see the through lines to your earlier work too. I mean, it, it seems like a really exciting generative project. Um, we well, hope thank you. So. <laughs> I look forward to it, and hopefully, you'll come back on. Uh, thank yeah. you for your time today, Pam. It's been great talking thank, with thank you. Thank you. The book is. Thank Gidget. you.
1: Go see some Gidgets. <laughs>
0: I, I think you've made a strong case for revisiting Gidget here, and, and hopefully, uh, in addition to reading your book, folks will will track down the, the various uh, incarnations she's taken on over the years. The book is Gidget, Origins of a Teen Girl Transmedia Franchise, available now in paperback from Rutledge and other online booksellers. This is Pete Kunze, and this has been New Books in Film on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.